At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn? And when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm gonna choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. All right, this is part two of my interview with Wei Tai Kwok. He's a climate leader who was recognized with the Green Ring Award. If you're not familiar with that award, that is the highest award given by Al Gore himself for the work that he did with the Climate Reality Project. I actually met Wei Tai because of the work he did with that organization, which is Al Gore's nonprofit that's doing amazing work to combat climate change. And Wei Tai is one of the greatest contributors to the success of that organization. In part one of our interview, we talked a lot about the climate crisis, including what companies and individuals can do to do their part. In this episode, we're going to talk more about leadership. And Wei Tai, he's got a ton of leadership background. He founded and led a successful advertising agency for over 20 years. That was prior to him getting into the renewable space where he was an executive for giants like SunTech. So on this show, he talks about the importance of vision casting, which for any mission-driven organization especially, that is so, so important because people want to know that the work they're doing has meaning. He also talks about why it's so important for great leaders to create pathways for upward mobility for their team members. And we talk about the value and importance of creating a profitable company. Because in the end, what good is vision casting? What good is upward mobility if you can't create a profitable organization? Waitai also shares insights that he gained from his coach on the fencing team at Yale. This coach sounds amazing. He taught there for almost 50 years. And Wei Tai shares some amazing insights that he gained while on that team, including gaining the courage and the fearlessness to be able to do just about anything that you set your mind to. Wei Tai is a personal hero of mine, and so I'm so excited to share this part of our interview. So without further ado, let's jump in to the conversation. Yeah, and again, coming back to this theme of what we've been talking about, really the business impact that can be made is monumental. And we can't ignore the fact that, as you said, we live in the, a, a society that's it's, let's, it's based on dollars and cents. And if the dollars and cents make sense, then that's going to give us the engine we need to really see the traction. You've had 
an amazing career in marketing, started your own company, a 10-year career in the renewable space as a senior level leader. Waite, what's next? Well, I, I think uh, I could stay in energy. It's a very exciting category and it's very important to continue to find solutions at space. Uh, but I have looked at some adjacent categories, which uh, really intrigued me. I looked at water desalinization because I think we're here in particularly in California, we're, we're going to have a water crisis for sure. And just decades ahead, we must find a solution. So I've looked into water. I'm interested in food and plant-based proteins or growing foods in a more sustainable way, sequestering more carbon in soils. That's um, of interest to me. I've looked into the building decarbonization area, as I mentioned to you, in terms of how would we transform our homes and businesses to use all electric? I think that's a big category. Uh, the one that uh, sort of my dream uh, company or industry would be the carbon sequestration business. Like if I could invent a magnet that would just attract CO2 and turn it into a rock, right? And just sequester it. Wouldn't that be an incredible invention? And there are companies out there that um, are turning CO2 into uh, concrete and building products. And so they there are companies doing that. But you know, my conclusion of looking at those four categories was that in the water category, since people think that water is free, that there, you know, that's a pretty hard barrier to overcome. You when you actually have to pay money for for technologies that would clean your water. So I don't think, sadly, that society is actually going to is putting any form of money and investment behind uh, water uh, availability technologies. And we're unfortunately we're not going to go do that until it's too late. As uh, is, is my conclusion in the carbon sequestration category. Uh, the my dream of a magnet that would attract carbon and sequester that's not going to happen as long as there's no price on carbon. If we don't put a price on carbon, there's not going to be any value to sequestering it. If we do put a price on it, then let's revisit that and maybe I can invent my uh, carbon magnet. But until then, I think those companies are going to be significantly have a have a d- disadvantage. So, looking at building decarbonization or food. I think those are, are ripe categories. Um, uh, I think in the food category, we've talked about earlier how the pr- plant-based protein category is is really hot right now. I, I personally like working in chaotic industries like the internet industry. I was, I didn't know if I mentioned, but I was in that industry for ten years through all the rapid growth and decline and so forth. I really get a rush and excitement out of working in chaos and trying to navigate the chaos. And I, I sort of sense that the plant-based protein category is is right in that space. And so that that sounds like a fun category, which from a greenhouse gas mitigation point of view also has meaningful um, potential. So that, that sort of interests me, plant-based or uh, building, you know, again, so either one of those could be a next step. The first question I have is, why do you think you like working in chaos? What is it about that environment that allows you to thrive? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, there's never a boring day at the office when you got chaos going on. And I do like change. I like, um, I'm not a guy that likes to go and have a, you know, some people like to go to the office and know what's going to happen and have a routine. There's something comforting about having uh, no surprises, right? It's less stressful to be in that type of environment. You know, I came out of the advertising agency industry where your clients are telling you to do this, that, and the other, and you've got clients who are airlines or theme parks or beers or banks or long distance companies. You, you have to learn so many things. It's, it's like just juggling a lot of different balls. And I, I find that to be very invigorating. I don't find it to be stressful. 
And so um, I've just, I, I've also just felt that uh, I, I operate really well and I, I have, I can keep my cool and still keep my uh, strategic lens on and not get too, too worked up about all these crazy um, directions that balls are flying and, and sort of just enjoy the chaos. So I don't know, it's maybe a, just a, a personal uh, thing that I, I, I like these type of companies. <laughs> probably not good for my health. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> well, but clearly if it's something that you enjoy and you thrive, then, then uh, do it, do it more. You know, you and I haven't had a chance to work together and I'm curious, what's your style when, you, when you're as a leader and a lot of the the people that listen to this show are leaders, they're entrepreneurs or they're business owners or they're executives or senior leaders within organizations. What's your style? I'm curious if somebody, if I were to ask somebody that's worked with you, how would they, how do you think they would describe you? Well, I think that it's important as I always felt it important to paint a picture of the future that we were trying to achieve and to paint that grand, remind people constantly of the grand vision of what we were doing. Uh, for instance, the most recent company I was at, which was the energy storage company, I would always remind people how important energy storage is to the future of the world. That in order for us to reach 100% renewable energy, we were standing on the backs of great progress in wind and solar but energy storage was the area that was lacking. So the work that we're doing is so critical to society that every day that you show up and you're working at your computer to design this improvement in whatever, it matters, right? And you know, I've been lucky to be part of companies where it really did matter in the last 10 years, right? If, if we could drive the price down of a solar panel or the price of an install of a solar system, every penny and everybody contributed to that in the company. And I want them to feel... Like, you know, as dull as they're, you know, can get pretty dragged, right? Sometimes the job, it can get sort of routinized. And I, I always felt that uh, one thing I, I like doing and I think people enjoyed about working together with me was that I remind them that all of this is, is actually super important and that please work faster, <laughs> please work harder, please make that breakthrough because we just cannot settle for, we're not here just to punch the card and go through the motions. And I think people do want meaning from their work, right? They they want to they want to not just get their paycheck, but they want to feel like they've uh, contributed meaningfully to society. And I truly think that in all these companies, we have the, that opportunity, and that the work was very important. So I think that inspires them. You know, it makes them feel good about coming to the office and yeah. and and feel like, wow, this is a great company. I don't know, you know, right? It can be a lot of stuff we do at the company is sort of tiring and, and stressful and so forth. But if, if you can at least keep that, remember that bigger perspective. And I think it's the job of leaders to enunciate that, right? Because if the leaders do not do it, then your middle level managers who enunciate it, it is, that's not going to really ring true, right? But if at the, the tone at the top is that, hey, we need to execute on all these day-to-day -day things, but the reason why is X, uh, I think that's the sort of the special sauce. Couldn't agree more. People do want meaning in what they're doing. They want to feel like their contributions are valuable. And if you're able to cast a vision as a leader that really highlights and reminds people that what they're doing is making an impact, what they're doing does matter. And yes, what they're doing needs to happen as quickly as possible. And this is the reason why they work that much harder and they're that much more dedicated and motivated to be 
all in with what they're doing. And I just say what's interesting that I found is that you'd think if I was at a company for 10 years and I had some employees there for eight years of the time, that maybe if I told them in year one that this is the, the dream and the vision, that do you really have to tell it to them every quarter or every year? And the answer is like, yes, you actually do, because they, they keep asking, are we still doing the same thing? And is that still our goal? And it's yeah, we're still, you know, fighting climate change. Or we're, uh, we're, yeah, I think it's very important for leaders to continue to reiterate the message, maybe with different flavors or angles or permutations, certainly to advance the message or acknowledge the progress that we've made towards that bigger vision. But to be regularly and sincerely and genuinely, it's not like, yeah, I mean, not greenwashing it or not being fake about it, but to be authentically monitoring your company's path along the spectrum. If you're, are you doing well on this or are we really falling short and saying we're falling short? We got it. We're not doing this right and being authentic. And I think that that is a motivator for, you know, your longtime employees to, to really go on the journey with you. And, and that's why I think I've, you know, made some great friendships with all my past uh, employees and staff. We, we love each other and seeing each other. And I think it's because we, we, were, we weren't just working together. We were on a mission together to, to change the world in whatever little way mm. that we had been hoping to do. Well, that answer was far exceeded any kind of answer I ever would have imagined because I think it's so valuable and so important. And so my follow-up question is simply this, what else? What else do you think is important for a leader to do and what did you practice yourself as a leader? It's interesting. I, I've learned that it's as a leader, you owe it to your staff to offer ad career advancement and mentoring and coaching. And you're, you're not just telling, they're not just workers who you pay them to do something and they, they, they have to execute for you. But as a manager, I always saw it as my responsibility to help whatever level staff I had to get to the next level of, you know, if they're a manager, how they become a senior manager. If they're a senior manager, how they become a director, how they become a vice president, right? And to make, have regular conversations about the individual's strengths, weaknesses, what they need to work on, what are their dreams and plans for their career, and to really care for them personally. Because I think if they, they know that you are watching them and you care about them that they'll they'll work on it better than if we didn't look at it. Some not everybody responds to that, but I, I think many people do. Most people want to see them uh, advance in their careers. And I, I think that one thing I learned early on is that it's it's an obligation of a manager to to cultivate um, and advance the, to think about the people under you and that you're responsible for. You're you're responsible not just for their performance but for their growth. And um, that's something that uh, I've learned a lot from, and I, I've been rewarded by that, mm -hmm. by focusing on that with the people around me. Well, you just had another swish. Uh, I like threes. Well, give, me, give me one more because I'm, I, I, look, the people that are listening right now, I, I really believe that the value that they'll gain by hearing what you as somebody that's been successful, not only as an entrepreneur, but also as a leader for multiple companies I told you this before we even started the show, but you're you're such a you have this aura and this energy and this pureness that it's unlike really something that I see very often. It's it's very rare. I I, tr I trust you, and I trust you because you 
lead with, I could tell that you lead with your heart and you, and you lead in a way that you care about other human beings. And there needs to be more people like that. Even though we haven't worked together, what you're telling me doesn't surprise me. It makes so much sense. I wish Thank we had you. worked. I wish we had worked together. Hey, it's never too late. Uh, it's never right? too late. Wait, 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 let's do, start something after this. <laughs> no show. kidding, man. All right. Yeah. And, and so I'm asking again because I I think there's so much value. What, what would be another principle or another ideal or another bit of wisdom that you could share in terms of your leadership approach and what you value or what's been valuable to you as a leader for companies? Well, first of all, thank you for saying that compliment. It just warms my heart. And I'm, I'm so touched to, um, uh, for you to say that, Billy. It's just, uh, it's, it's amazing. And what is a, another area? Well, I, I actually think that, uh, although this sounds obvious, but running a profitable business is, I think, paramount to being a responsible business person. I came out of it as an entrepreneur. I, you know, got, getting out of college, I did work a couple jobs for other people, but I did start my own import-export company. I started a long-distance phone company that was not successful. And then I started an advertising agency that was that took 10 years to become successful. But I think that my learning over the last 25 years or so is that we focused on profitability. We had to deliver value to customers who are willing to pay for the value and that we then could you know, sustainably pay our staff and rent and all our expenses and still have money left over, right? So that the company could be healthy. And that ad agency I started in 1990, it, uh, and I sold it in 2010, and I, I think we sold it again in 2017, but it only just closed uh, its doors a year ago at almost... Uh, 30 years of running. And if you know the advertising agency industry, you'll know that most agencies don't last more than four or five or seven years. If you can get past 10 or 15, that's extremely rare. And I would say proudly that of those 28 years, the business ran profitably for 20, 26 or 27 years. It was only the year, the dot-com crash years that it was not profitable. And the therefore, the engine of its longevity was its ability to deliver profits. It had to have the sustainable, that's, that's, it's, it was solid financially, right? If we had a house and we built a house, it has to be solid to last 30 years. If you're cutting corners or if you're just not making ends meet, you're really risking the whole operation. And so to be profitable also makes you need to be creative and making sure that you're, you've got the best services, that you're, you're actually innovative. You can't, you can't be falling behind the times. It means you need to watch every penny or you have to be savvy about how you run your business. I love the discipline of running a profitable business. Uh, I've been in a number of other businesses now where the focus has been more on growth. Let's just grow and don't worry about the profits. The profits go from 15% margins down to 10 or 8 or 5 or 2 or 1. Well, gosh, when you're down to 1 or 2% or negative 1, you're going to start, you know, you'll be in tough financial shape and uh, could go into bankruptcy, which some some businesses I was with did go into bankruptcy. And all of that effort that I felt we put into the company, then when the company went to zero, it's like, oh, I wasted four years there at this company because I it, the company's gone now. So I'm actually so proud of this 25-person company that I founded because it it lasted 27 years of profitability. And that to me is is a hallmark, I think, of of the management after I left, they kept on running it profitably. I think that that's a hallmark of uh, something very important to me. I bring from my small business days as an entrepreneur, even though I've worked at, at numbers, numerous Fortune 500 companies now. But I think that somehow, even in these publicly listed companies, which should have more accountability to shareholders, uh, sometimes that healthy profit is not truly in the DNA 
of the the business managers. And uh, I always felt a little uncomfortable about like, oh, this is this is feeling dangerous, you know, wearing my 17-year entrepreneur's hat. I said, I, I don't like this margin. <laughs> I don't like the way our ratios are. And, you know, sure enough, that those were danger signs that led to their demise. So uh, I think businesses should be sustainable. Not all businesses have to last forever. If the business model, you know, you do it for a while and then there's no more such thing to do it, that's okay to close it. But if you fail because you didn't run the business profitably, then shame on you as the leaders for, yeah. you know, taking the eye off the ball. So remind people why they're doing meaningful work, right? That's clearly incredibly important. Give them opportunities to elevate their career and make sure that the vehicle they're in is actually profitable and successful and can be sustainable for as long as it makes sense for that business. And some businesses that may be 30 years, some businesses it may be less or more, but as a leader, Doing those things, I think, is hugely valuable. When I think about somebody that's just starting out as an entrepreneur, there's no shortage of things that they could be focused on. What advice would you have for somebody that's just getting started, not necessarily from a climate perspective, but just generally as an entrepreneur, what would you suggest or what advice would you give them? I always follow the money. That is, you are starting a business in order to provide services for someone who has the demand for your services or product, right? So you, you have to, when I say follow the money, it's follow your customers. What are your customers? Be a really good listener for what your customers wants and needs are that you're fulfilling. And then make sure you're building your company to, to exceed that customer's expectations. I think that, um, you know, we, we were in, always in good stead to be constantly in touch with trying to now, you don't want to be too far ahead of where the customer's money is, but what is the customer willing to spend money on today? Uh, find out what that, what that is and then make the product and service sure. for that so that you can earn your good keep. That makes and, sense. And so I, I think um, you know one secret I've had is always, if ever I'm confused or what's going on here, I always remember like, just be customer focused. Go get talking to the customer again. Go sit with, go fly out to your customers, sit with your customers, learn from them, be humble. Uh, don't think that you've done such a great job with your company that you don't, you don't have to worry about what the customer wants because you know customers are constantly changing just as we ourselves, we change what we want. And pretty soon, if you don't change, then they're going to go buy it from somebody else. Curious who stands out in your life as a role model, as somebody that you have looked at as someone that has really presented a way of either doing business or leading their life or acting in a way that has had a profound influence on you. And what did you learn from them? How did they, how did they help you become the person you are? Yeah. Wow. Thinking about role models, I would immediately think of my father, my dad, who is today 93 years old and uh, taking, uh, doing strong. My dad worked for VA hospitals in Washington, D.C. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast that he was an immigrant from China. He educated in the U.S., but he got a job at the federal government. And the good thing about that is that he worked from nine to five and that he came home at five and uh, we had dinner together. And I, the reason I mentioned this is that compared to those days in the 60s and 70s, uh, that balanced lifestyle is something I feel we have lost today, especially being here in Silicon Valley. And, you know, it's a cr crazy work, work, work. I think 
ever since the dot-com era in 1996 until today, I think uh, we're, we're now working six or seven days a week with international operations where if we've got cell phones, beepers, and you know, I mean, that phone's distracting us all the time. And I look at and compare my role as a father to my children with the way my father was really balanced his work and compartmentalized what he did at the office. And then during his nights and weekends, they were all for us, the kids. And that's something that we took for granted, that he was going to be home for dinner, that he was going to help us with our homework, that we'd play card games after after dinner. Canasta was our family favorite. We still love playing that, that we would go out and play tennis as a family on a weekend. And then, you know, my dad would teach me how to use tools and how to cook food. And we'd go on summer and winter vacations. And, um, you know, I think we... It wasn't until, of course, you have your own children that you start thinking about, are you, you know, what are you doing with your kids? And, you know, what I'm doing, like, I'm looking at my phone or telling, you know, during dinner, or I'm, I'm excusing myself to sit, take a phone call from Hong Kong during the middle of dinner. And then I, my kids are asleep before I've gotten out of the conference call, right? Or on weekends, they're playing a game, but I have, you know, a meeting from an out of town meeting people in town. And so, you know, I'm not as engaged. And I, and I, I really uh, reflect on role modeling of, can we live the right lifestyle here in the U.S. where we balance what's really important to us and not somehow get too out of balance in terms of our work-life commitments? And so my dad is, uh, and, and the, the good benefits I had of being brought up like that, and I sort of measure myself to say, am I doing that in my life? At, you know, hey, if you're successful at work, but at home with your children and your spouse, you're unsuccessful. How are you going to feel when you're 65 years old? Is that, mm. is that the happy life? And you know, probably I didn't think about that before I was 30 or 40 years old, but certainly now in the, as I get older, I, it's really important to me that, that, and I have tried over the last uh, many years to, to be sure I carved out that time for my family because, yeah, I didn't want to, on my tombstone, say, you know, here's a guy who, who was, you know, worked too hard. Absentee. Yeah. And that, uh, yeah, I wish I worked another day. I don't think we, we anybody says that. Everybody would say, I, I wish I spent more time with my family. So I, I didn't want to fast forward to that point and, and have those statements. So it's tough though. I mean, right, we've got uh, plenty of distractions and we are a 24 by seven competitive business world. So it's it's not like the 60s and 70s, the world my dad lived in, but that's a challenge of our generation. We've got to find the right way to be part of our families, part of our society, contributing as citizens to our society and work. What's that triangular balance between mm. all the things we need to do. And let's not get so absorbed with, uh, you know, IPOing our company or, you know, exiting that, that we, you know, forget some of the big things. Balance is such a mystery in a lot of ways, I think, to people that especially live in this country, because it's so challenging to find that balance point, because we do want to give all of our efforts and best efforts to making our career successful, but we certainly don't want to shortchange our family. And then there's also the community and the giving back and serving and doing those things. Yet there's only so many minutes in the day. There's only so much time that we have. So how do we maintain that balance? And, you know, I often think about, you know, people that do have those nine to five jobs that are very rigid, they clock in, clock out. Yeah. And they're gone for those chunk of the days. But when they're not doing that, the rest of that time, especially if they don't take their work home with them, then it becomes a, a better, in a lot of ways, a better system. Yeah, because let's, yeah. let's face it. I mean, I've been there, you know, working in a corporate environment where I'm there, but not there. I mean, I might be at home, but I could be on a conference call. 
as you know, I've had teams in all over the world. And like you, I may be on a call with somebody in China or somebody in, in you know, in Europe. And the time difference makes it such that you, you need to talk at odd hours. But what you're doing effectively is you're saying to your family that you're unavailable and you're not there, even though you may be there in, in physicality, <laughs> in the right. physical sense, you're there. The subject of time and, and how we manage ourselves, uh, I often talk about it's not time management, it's self-management. How we manage ourselves matters. Yeah, great point. I'm fascinated by this subject. And one of the things that this leads me into is the idea behind rituals, systems, habits, and processes that we develop for ourselves and how we really allow ourselves to be a more balanced human being. Curious what you do or what tips you have in that realm. One of the habits I've had all my life really has been to every morning make a little list on the back of an envelope and piece of paper just to say, all right, these are writing down everything that I have to do that day or that week. And then just trying to prioritize like, okay, what do I really have to do and want to do? Because otherwise uh, I do find myself, you just uh, getting started on whatever happens to pop up at 9.05 AM. And then before you know it, it's 12.05 and oops, I didn't do what I really need to do really this morning. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And so I, this, uh, you know, the little habit of writing down, uh, what do they say? Um, planning your work and then working your plans. Right. You know, I think that that, that totally resonates with me and uh, I don't have a fancy system. And I, if I showed you around here, you'd, you'd laugh at the little pieces of paper that I have that with my lists and stuff. <laughs> Anyways, um, so that's one thing I do. I think the other thing I do uh, more recently, last five years, is make time to exercise. I uh, was a competitive uh, fencer when I was in college. And so I really loved playing sports. And Sounds like a very Yale thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, uh, and I, I fenced competitively for even a decade after I graduated. And you at, but at Yale. I fenced at Yale. That, yes, I mean, I that, that sounds <laughs> amazing. I mean, I don't know how many fencing programs there are at the collegiate level. I would imagine there's a lot, maybe, maybe more on the East Coast, maybe not. But it seems like Yale would have a pretty good fencing team. Well, the uh, we were very lucky. We had uh, when I was there, we had the, the the coach of the team, Henry Hartunian, was the coach of the U.S. Olympic team. Okay, so my I clearly I was st- uh, just generalizing there, but maybe I was uh, maybe I was onto something. Yeah, I was a total beginner when I walked in the doors there, and uh, he was uh, specialized in coaching beginners and welcomed that. And so, yeah, there's a whole another story about uh, fencing. But I think my point is uh, when you ask what else can you do for your mental health? And recently um, it's to carve out time each week, twice a week. I, on Tuesday, Thursday nights, I religiously go to the gym and and fence because it's a great way to- Oh, so you're still fencing I'm today. fencing now because uh, during those two hours that I'm there, you're so busy defending yourself from getting stabbed or you're stabbing somebody, you don't have time to be thinking about work or, you know, which sort of you, I carry around all, 24 hours a day. I'm thinking about work. And so I need to like find ways to distract myself where I'm, I, I'm not able to think of work That's right. and find those could breaks. Be gar- could be gar- Gardening, it could be cooking. Yes, we right. talked about this earlier. It's so valuable to get our brain, especially as somebody that is either a hard driver type personality that wants to help their company be successful, or if you're a business owner, it's compounded. I think even worse, you're just constantly consumed with your work. So taking your mind off of the work and into it could be something like watering your lawn or something. You talked about gardening, but fencing sounds like another great 
avenue for you to right right well the thing about gardening is i might be gardening but i could still be thinking about work so it's not a total escape that i'm I'm trying to get but i you know i think we we have like an endless if we sit in front of our computers and do email it's endless we we cannot even go to bed at night having finished all the things we need to do that's the curse right of of email so i i think that having an activity at least for me like like sports which does involve, um, you know, a combat sport and somebody's about to hit me, then I, I just can't be thinking about work. So that's very therapeutic and, and been great for me, at least, to be sure I schedule that in. <laughs> the fight or flight, getting, uh, getting you, your attention to focus on protecting yourself as opposed to thinking about any number of things you could be thinking about work-wise. That's right. Who has been the most inspirational person in your life and why? Well, we talked about my fencing coach in college, Henry Haratunian, who was the U.S. Olympic coach at the time. And I think that um, I came on, I walked on as somebody who had no experience fencing. I was a tennis player in high school. And uh, in reading a little bit about him as I, I was a freshman there, it said that he fo- he specialized in people with no experience, but who had the raw desire to really do something with uh, themselves. And he had made some All-Americans before in, in his years. And I said, wow, that, that sounds so cool. And uh, so I, I committed myself to Yale fencing those four years, made us believe that we could become Olympic level fencers, even with, you know, at 18 years old, I had no experience. He said, There's no reason why you can't become an Olympic fencer. And he was so adamant that he fooled me into believing I could do that. Uh, as he did with all his students, he he just made what we thought was impossible. He said, "No, this, you can be doing this. You do you you, plot, you work hard. You focus on that, and you have it as your dream." And really, what he gave me was the courage and really fearlessness of targeting goals that I would have never thought of for myself. Who of us thinks? Can you think of like you would become an Olympic skier? snowboarder right i mean that's like my attitude was in high school i was like my olympic what you know that's crazy but he he made me believe that and you know not foolishly i truly did believe that and i did try to make you know the the olympic teams in in that year Um, and of course i i was uh so far from achieving that but the point was that i what i did achieve was so far beyond what i uh, i would have thought i could do and um what it made me realize was that what he taught me and why he inspires me uh, more than and any other teacher I had was that the barriers we have to success are all mental barriers in our own mind. We restrict and limit ourselves about what we think we cannot do, when in fact we can do way more than what we think we can do. And it's just really a readjustment of our mindset to say that oh, I'm going to, I actually think I can not just be a college, make the team. I think I could make the Olympic team. And, uh, and that uh, sort of courage to, to, to strive higher and the courage to fail and to learn from it, but to work hard and to have the passion and the dream, I think uh, has uh, probably the, the, the biggest education I had at Yale University was in the fencing room wow. from Henry Hartunian. Amazing. I'm Floored. I, I'm curious. You you highlighted a couple things. One is this unlimited thinking. It's all comes down to mindset. Two, it's believing in the people so much, right? That believing in them and helping them believe in their themselves so much that they could have an audacious goal like being on the Olympic teams or making the Olympic team as a fencer. Curious. This individual sounds remarkable and you you walked on and you made the team and 
He specializes in people that have the heart and the desire to want to do it and molds them, regardless of talent level, it sounds like, but molds them into the best version of themselves they can be. I'm curious, what are some other things that stand out? Because this person sounds like, I want to want to interview him. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's uh, well, he lives back in New Haven and he just retired this year after 49 wow. years as the coach. So he continued to coach and he is a legend in the, in the Hall of Fame of the American Fencers, U.S. Fencing Association Hall of Fame. Uh, he's an incredible person. And as I, I talk to others who've, trained under him. They, they have very similar stories to myself. And I, I truly think that, you know, the, the key secret that, uh, that he, he just uh, th- said, why do you think somebody can be better than you? Why do you think when you compete that you're going to lose to them? No, you go beat them, right? Go win. Don't, don't go to, don't think somebody else is, everybody else has two arms, two legs and a head, like, just like you. So what's going to make the difference is your attitude and your belief system and whether you're going to work hard. You, you, you can't just say, I'm going to win. You have to work hard. Put in the time. And, um, you know, maybe this, I used to play the violin when I was, was young and uh, I would practice an hour every day. And I did not really enjoy playing the violin and I didn't enjoy practicing <laughs> for an hour, but I would dutifully go in and my mom would set the egg timer for an hour. And, you know, there I would go at the age of 10 or 12 years old in the music room and I'd play for an hour and then I'd come out and because I'd done my hour and I was a tennis player too. And we practiced, we went to practice, but it wasn't until I got to college on the fencing team that I actually understood what practice meant, um, that, uh, and coach Hartunian said, you know, when you come in here at 3.30 PM, when you walk out of here at 5.30 p.m., you better be better than when you walked in here. Mm. Like every minute counts. And we're practicing and you're improving. You've got 120 minutes. You better be better every day. And I never in my years of being a varsity tennis player to being a violinist, all those hours and hours that I put in, I never thought like, okay, after 60 minutes, I need to be better. No, all I was doing was going through the motions, through the motions right. of, of hitting, doing, playing, doing it. And then I put in my time. Waiting for the egg timer to go yeah, off. And I thinking that time alone was going to make me better. And, you know, how foolish it took me until I was that age to have somebody tell you, you know, it's actually not the time that counts. It's what's going through your brain and what's your attitude towards yeah. the minutes there. And then he told me, you know, that when you want to practice this action, you can't just do it fast. You need to do it slow in order to do it fast and, you know, to really break it down. So I have really valued that, that every minute counts, that, you know, every day we go to work, am I better at 5 p.m. that day than I was at 9 a.m. that morning? Is my staff better at 5 p.m. than at 9 a.m.? Because if, if we're better every day and every week, we're going to become an amazing company at the end of the year. And unless we have that attitude that we all need to be better at the end of every day, then we're not going to get any better and we'll be just average like everybody else. And I think I, I'm so grateful for what you learn, uh, what I learned on in sport, how much it applies to our lives in terms of our attitudes of how we spend time. So I'm very, try to be very careful about the way I spend time and make sure that, you know, we're, we're making progress. And then the people around me, same thing. I asked them, I said, Hey, you know, we're putting a lot of time here. Let's make sure you're getting better. Cause I know you want to get better. You don't want to just be here. You want to get better. Yeah. What a great story. What a great insight. And what a, what I think about is compounding. It's almost like compounding interest on ourselves. If you do a little bit, a lot over time, it matters. And if you, even if it's just an incremental improvement, but that incre, incre, but that incremental improvement over time 
pays huge dividends in the long run, as long as you're aware and consciously thinking about, am I better today than I was yesterday or even better today than I was this morning? And in the case of you know, playing violin or fencing in this case, yeah, thinking about that. Just curious, that's a huge insight from him. What other what other insight from him stands out as something that you gleaned or took away? Because clearly he's somebody special. And I'm wondering if there's anything else that stands out as really a key factor in his ability to have the success that he's had. Uh, I think that that is, it's really the mental approach and that, and discipline. I think uh, you have to put the time in effort. You know, a lot of people had fencing talent, but they didn't work too hard at it. They didn't really, they were successful because they had a lot of natural talent. And then there were students who were not as natural talent, but they put a lot of work in. That was sort of like me. I had less natural talent, but I really put the effort in. And then you know, sometimes I, what I found from a team building point of view, we had a nine person fencing team. We had of which, you know, three or four are really physically and naturally talented, but five or six are average. And it's at the end of one year, two year, three or four years, who are the biggest contributors to winning of the team? Well, some of the naturally talented people are pulling their weight, but by and large, the people who worked really hard and applied themselves and moved themselves forward every day, they were the ones that made us, you know, Ivy League champions our senior year. And when you apply that later to my company work, when I looked at the talent pool of my company and people that worked, you know, there's some really brilliant and shiny people who didn't really work that hard. They sort of relied on their natural talent. Mm-hmm. And there were others who you thought, Maybe they're not like the brightest bulb in the world, but boy, they work, They really worked hard. And I saw that same thing happening in my businesses too, that finding people who were willing to work hard and were really dedicated to improving themselves, that they were extremely valuable team players. And so I wouldn't, you wouldn't be surprised that they are the key team players over time uh, compared to some of the folks for whom life comes easy and you know they don't, they don't work as hard. You, you take their talent, but- but who do you build your business around? That's <laughs> so true. There's no substitute for grit, determination, and hard work. Putting in the time, it's not always glamorous. It's not always easy, but it's necessary. And yeah, sometimes it's the most talented people that rest on their laurels and don't think they need to put in the time that get passed up by the person that's got the heart and the determination that's going to just outwork them that will overall outachieve them and will be the person that ends up hopefully getting the recognition they deserve for the, right. con- the contributions. Don't you see that in your, in your career, right? All, all the time. All the time, right? Uh, it's just, you know, so that is an encouragement for everybody that uh, no matter what your natural talent is, it, 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 that's just where you're starting from. And companies value, it's what you do with it. That's right. right. Not just what you have, but what you do with it's it. How you apply it. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, the last question is really open-ended and it's simply w- what last words do you have or what else would you like to share with the audience? Thank you for your time today. I've learned so much and you've just floored me on so many levels from how you acted upon recognizing just how important and critical it is to take action from a, a climate change initiative standpoint and literally switching your careers and dedicating your time to go out there and be an advocate and be a humanist and doing all those things and learning more about how you act as a leader and how you really think about leadership from the perspective of helping people understand why their job matters so much and vision casting in a way that will help support them 
and their contributions and giving them the avenues and possibilities to grow and, and flourish in their career. And also making sure that at the same time, you're running a profitable and successful business. You've shared so many valuable insights along the way. I'm so grateful and wondering just as a exclamation point on, on what you've shared or, or just a final word uh, on the show. Well, looking to the future, I, uh, I, I, think I, I think about youth and let me just challenge all of the listeners to think about climate, the climate crisis as uh, a moral crisis that we adults today are imposing on the youth of the future. And I am, we talked about how excited I am that the youth movement is rising uh, and that we have more and more youth voices. And, you know, one thing that uh, is in my head right now as we sit here and looking at what is the next step for me and what am I thinking about, I'm thinking about how do we engage youth in the climate movement? What is their, well, it's great that they're marching in the streets. How, you know, what are we going to get more? What What's going to happen in terms of youth engagement in our democratic system around the world? And what can we as adults do to include them as part of the solution? Because I think for the last decade plus, we adults are working on it in a vacuum without them, right? And yet it is their world. We think they're too young for it. But you know what? They're like these uh, sixth graders and seventh graders out protesting with their signs re- you know, recently in this. And that really touches me like, oh my goodness, they, they're not out there because their parents told them to be there. They're out there because they've internalized this. And I think you know, as um, I'm trying to figure out how uh, the adults of today work with hand in hand with the uh, youth movement who's asking whether it be for the green new deal or you know whatever it is they in the, how do we connect with youth in the years ahead so that we can take that energy just really liven up this movement and make a future for them and it's a big question mark to me i don't know how but i know that this is something that's we must capitalize on the moment that greta has given us this gift of youth engagement and you know, have it really flourish in the next couple of years so that it's just a tidal wave of progress and that we'll look back on this window of time in 2020 and say, wow, that was that was an incredible inflection point when the youth stepped in and they got involved and their voices were heard. And as a result, you know, this we we got this to happen because we, you know, silly adults, we were just locked in deadlock and we were making no progress and arguing. But when the youth entered the picture, they were the catalyst. And I think it's really important for us, for me, to uh, try to figure out what I can do in the next year to 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 figure out what, uh, you know, what that that role is and how to get even more momentum from the youth enthusiasm. Yeah, it's interesting. You think about the power of connection and the power that exists in today's modern world. You know, we all can say negative things about the internet, but the reality is youth have access to knowledge in a much more fast and different way than we ever could have imagined when the internet didn't exist. And I think what that's allowing is for visibility into what the issues are at a in a nanosecond. And I think that is, in my personal belief, going to be the reason that we have a shot at actually making the change that we need to make. And it will only happen as a result of the youth believing it. And I think they will, because I think they, they're going to see it as a result of it being clear and obvious. Um, information and knowledge is power and the internet does provide that. Well, look, 
I am just so honored and privileged to have had you on the show. Thank we- you so much for having me. This has been a, uh, a great and enjoyable uh, talk together. Oh man, I, I totally agree. You are a remarkable human being. I feel privileged to know you and to have you in my life. And uh, I've learned a lot from you on this show and I look forward to many more years learning from you and just uh, growing our friendship and seeing what we can do to change the world together. Wei Tai, thank you for being on. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Billy, for having me. This is, it's been a thrill and let's keep working together and uh, being part of the solution to the climate crisis. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.